the beauty and the art of, of Christian life. Um, the way people live in many ways a, a, a faith more beautiful, more rich, more sophisticated than they can even articulate. And just to see it and behold it, especially in the face of suffering, in the face of inexplicable difficulties and events that mangle life, to see how people are able to, with a brilliant improvisation, um, grasp life and hold on to life in the midst of massive contradictions. I've always been drawn to, to that beauty, the beauty of, of the art of living in the face of difficulty, that Christianity, I think more than any other reality on this planet, uh, shows us how people can do that. Hi, friends. I'm Amy Julia Becker, and this is Love is Stronger Than Fear, a podcast about pursuing hope and healing in the midst of personal pain and social division. Today, I'm talking with Willie James Jennings, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and Africana Studies at Yale Divinity School. Dr. Jennings is also the author of The Christian Imagination and After Whiteness, uh, as well as a commentary on the Book of Acts. They are all really commendable in very different ways. And I particularly appreciated um, his commentary on Acts, which you'll get to hear us talk about in a little bit. Dr. Jennings and I had this conversation actually when the podcast was on vacation, which is to say over the summer. Uh, That was when he was available because of his school schedule. And you'll hear me make reference to going to summer camp, even though I am sharing this conversation with you in October. So sorry for that. What's it called? Anachronistic um, aspect of the show. Anachronistic is a word I learned just this past year with my children in uh, in school. Anyway, you also might notice that my voice is a little scratchy in this interview because I got a cold at that very same summer camp and I was sniffling my way through this conversation. But I want to share it with you now because it is a conversation about beauty and promise. It's a conversation about the hope of Christianity if and as we are able to untether Christianity from whiteness, if and as we are able to reimagine institutions and relationships that are built upon mutual dependence instead of hierarchy and power. So I'm excited for you to hear what Dr. Jennings has to teach us today. Dr. Jennings, it is a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you so much for your time. Glad to be here with you, Amy. So I want to start by trying to introduce our listeners to you. And I've mm-hmm. struggled a little bit with how to ask a question because when I look at your bio and from what I know about you, it's like, okay, you're a professor and you're a minister. You've worked in the North. You've worked in the South. You grew up in the Midwest. You've written about mm-hmm. history and theology and sociology. You've written mm-hmm. academic books. You've written what I consider a very accessible lay person commentary on the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. So what I came to as maybe by means of introduction, could you talk about what holds all of your work together? Like what, what are the themes that you return to again and again, and where did your interest in those themes come from? Well, Amy, I tell you, um, uh, the, the uh, questions that I've always had about um, the Christian life and what actually constitutes authentic Christian life, Mm. raised in a context where people were intensely Christian. I was raised in an intensely Christian town, filled with Christian bookstores, filled with Christian churches, 
the airways were permeated with Christian programming, mm-hmm. and, but it was an incredibly race-filled, racist, uh, race-conscious place. And I was trying to make sense of Christianity and, re- and that relationship to, to race and the realities of race. But I was also um, deeply interested in how Christians think. And um, the, the idea of a, Christ, a thinking Christian has always fascinated me. Mm. Not only how people think their faith, but how they think their life through their faith. Mm. And I've always been um, fascinated by, the, by both the beautiful and the weird <laughs> ways people who are thinking their faith and trying to think their life through their faith how they live. And so in many ways, I've been like a junior anthropologist and sociologist all my life, just trying to understand how, how, how do you come to that? <laughs> you come to that way of seeing the world. And yeah. so um, tr- trying to understand the, um, the reality of that, that uh, life of faith has been a part of it. And then I think a third thing that's always drawn me is the, the beauty and the art of, of Christian life. Um, the way people live um, in many ways, a, a, a faith more beautiful, more rich, more sophisticated than they can even articulate. Mm. And just to see it and behold it, especially in the face of suffering, in the face of inexplicable um, uh, difficulties and events that mangle life, to see how people are able to, with a brilliant improvisation, um, grasp life and hold on to life in the midst of massive contradictions. I've always been drawn to to that beauty, the beauty of, of the art of living in the face of difficulty, that Christianity, I think more than any other reality on this planet, uh, shows us how people mm. can do that. And so those are the themes that have just run through my life and run through my work. And I continue to um be incredibly fascinated with um, people of faith, the things we believe, how they're formed, and how we how we live them out. I love hearing that. I was, um, you know, again, having read a lot of your work, I expected some of what you just said, but I um, wasn't really expecting the beauty part. And I want to pause there for a minute. I just came away, I told you, from a camp in Alabama, um, and the camp is called Hope Heals. So it's a camp that is uh, for families that have been affected by disability of all sorts. So we were there with our daughter who has Down syndrome, um, but you also have people who have been affected by you know, diabetes and are going blind, or you've got people who've had strokes or people with cerebral palsy or autism, like a whole range of different disabilities and conditions. Um, And the sense of coming together in a place to care for one another and serve. It's um, the, the day we were leaving, the person who's the director of the camp said, you know, you, we talk about it as if you're about to go out into your real life but actually being here is more real than anything you're gonna find back at home because we are actually caring for one another in a mutual relationships of giving and receiving. I mean, we were there as volunteers, even though we have a child with a disability 
you know, because there was such a sense of fluidity um, and there was so much beauty there amid that hardship and pain. And it does feel like a, a more real taste of what it means to be human, of what it means to know God there than almost anywhere else. And that's just what your comments about the beauty of um, the Christian faith that, again, cannot always even be put into words, but is so attractive um, to me. Mm -hmm. And I think something that I keep coming back to. But what I'm curious about for you is you also write about some of the horrors that have been perpetrated in the name of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. and, and the ways in which even um, some aspects of Christianity have enabled that type of the thinking that leads to the horrors. Right. Mm -hmm. So how Absolutely. do you how do you reconcile those contradictions or are they contradictions? Like where does the, how does the beauty and the horror within our history, at least as Christians, um, how do you mm -hmm. think about that? Well, Christianity has always been a struggle um, and it is a struggle at, at its very heart, a struggle to follow where the spirit of God is leading. Mm -hmm. And we human creatures are caught up in um, the grace-filled action of God to draw us toward life with God. And we struggle. <laughs> we struggle mightily to, to follow where God is leading. And um, some people have designated that with, a, with the term sin, and I think that's correct. But often to use the word sin doesn't really help people envision what's really going on. But it, it is that, that's at the heart of these contradictions for us on, in one sense, that is in terms of what we do, in terms of our agency and our actions, we struggle to follow where God is leading. And that struggle has taken different forms at different times in history. But in our time, mm. by our time, I mean um, from the beginning of the colonial moment in the, in the uh, 15th, 16th century, we have really struggled to um, recognize the full humanity of um, of all God's creatures that are human, and you know, I think one of the the great problems we're we are yet in the midst of is that so many Christians don't really understand their faith. Mm. And, what, and what I mean by that is that so many Christians are unaware of the the history you're pointing to. Amy, there is a Christian architecture to modern racial reasoning. And there is a racial architecture to modern Christianity. And so many Christians never got the memo about either one of those things. So will and you because, say more about both of those statements? Yeah. Like sure. just, yeah. Can you dig in yeah, a little sure. bit? Absolutely. So when I say that there is a um, Christian architecture to modern racial reasoning, I'm pointing to the history established by Christians, nurtured and created by Christians, the history of how racial racial identity, racial reasoning, and race came to be. Christians were at the very heart of that of that creation and the way in which they understood the peoples of the, what we call the new worlds. Mm -hmm. And so Christians were at the very heart of, of that. And Christians did two things basically, and I'll keep it pretty straightforward for your audience. They did two things, basically. The one is that they came to the new worlds, and by the new worlds, we mean what we would call the Americas, what we would call um, sub-Saharan Africa, what we would call the Pacific Islands, Australia, 
came to uh, the new worlds and they um on the one hand they designated <laughs> they uh, identified who these people were and then in that designation they tried to organize who they were in relationship to themselves and so that designation had to do with the way they uh, um, saw them, described them, and described themselves at the same time. And they drew on some of the languages, ideas from the old world to do that. And so the ideas of black and white um, became important utility in helping them figure out how to understand themselves in relationship to all these peoples. But that designation it, it began really as a kind of, let's say, a kind of harmless comparison. It quickly became a hierarchical vision <laughs> of, of full humanity with the European who called themselves white being at the very top. Mm -hmm. Now, that, that piece goes along with another thing they did, and that is that they quickly separated people from land. And they separated people from land in two senses, Amy. Mm. The one is that they took the land, which is the basic sense. They took the land. Uh, and, and their their rationale for taking the land is that the land, um, if it is not being cultivated, if it's not being made productive, then it's no man's land, as it were. And the, the, the famous phrase is terra nullis, that it is empty land. Mm. Um, and then, but on the, in the other sense of taking the land, they denied what so many indigenous peoples around the world um, said. And that is that who I am cannot be separated from this place. Mm. That my identity is tied fundamentally to this place. It's tied to the animals, it's tied to the land, it's tied to the water, it's tied to the trees, the wind, the mm. season, it's tied. This is a part, a fundamental part of who I am. It's not me plus the land, it's one reality, me and the land. For the for those colonialists who came, they said, no, that's ridiculous. You carry your identity wholly on your body. Mm. So where you are is inconsequential to who you are. Where you are is just a place. Who you are is something different. And so they forced so many indigenous peoples to see their identities as disconnected to, from the land. Why? Because they wanted to turn the land into property on its way to becoming private. So and Christians, I'm sorry, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Well, no, I'm just curious because I think that has implications. I mean, the, the implications for indigenous peoples mm -hmm. seem like, okay, yes, that is obvious, but it seems as though there's also implications for the European uh, people who are leaving their their land, right? Like their place mm -hmm. of origin and coming to a Absolutely. new place. And I'm just thinking even in terms of some sense of, um, you know, people even ask me where I'm from and I don't always know how to answer the question uh, right. because I've lived in so many different places. And so I'm curious just to um, draw that thread forward, you know, five or 600 years in terms mm -hmm. of how you see that affecting uh, that particular, and again, maybe I'm wrong, but I think it, it's a, like, m many people have learned a lot about how the racial hierarchies have been harmful to all of us, but this idea of separating place from person um, what do you think the implications are for us now, especially as Christians? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, they're immense. And, and the first thing is you want to hold those two things together. Most people don't. 
So most people don't hold the, the problem of the hierarchical formation of racial designation to the transformation of land into private yeah. property. And, and the reason why they have to be held together is because those two things are always together. <laughs> and the, the one makes possible the other, always. Mm. But the implications are, are right in front of us. The first crucial implication is that where we are, um, and by we, I mean most Western peoples, most peoples who have been shaped inside this colonial legacy, where we are is inconsequential to who we are. Mm -hmm. We can be. And so um, the first thing is that it creates what I call a reality of displacement that we, mm -hmm. are, we all live with, that we live on the surface of place. We don't see and sense uh, a, a, a deep connection to any place. And that's 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 a that's an incredible problem, because the level of connectivity we sense with a place has direct bearing on the level of relationality we believe we're supposed to have yeah. in a place. Yeah. So if I think well, I'm just I'm just here, I have a job, you know, I'm going to school, but I'm just here, and then I'm elsewhere, you know, then our sense of uh, not only responsibility, but a kind of deep ethical and moral commitment mm -hmm. to one another will always be shallow. So that's the first incredible and very important implication. The second is what's tied to what I said a moment ago, and that is the land is turned from a part of who we are. The land is turned from a co-creature, as it were. And by land, I'm also including water and animals and so forth. It goes from being seen as a deep companion that tells me who I am to simply being a tool for my youth. Right. And so um, it opens up the possibility for an extractive vision of the world. Mm -hmm. What do I mean by that? Extractive vision of the world means that I go to a place and I ask the question, what can I get out of it? And we are living, as you all know, as you know, we are living in the midst of the proliferation of that vision of the world. The world is a tool, a resource that I can get out of it what I want. Which, Another way to say that is the implication of this long history is that we, we all function in relationship to the world like vampires. Mm. We suck out of it what we want <laughs> and give back only to the extent that will enable us to suck out more. Right. And that that is a that is an incredible problem. But then there's a there's a third very important implication for us and that is it has undermined any real doctrine of creation for, right. for those of us who are Christian. We don't really have a doctrine of creation. Um because the doctrine of creation would involve us in thinking about the shape of our living and what's known as the built environment. That is the way we build neighborhoods and cities and communities. It, it would involve us thinking much more intentionally in terms of what our discipleship means for the shape of our living. Well, and, I'm, and I do think there are so many um, very, yeah, kind of pragmatic implications to that final point you're making about the doctrine of creation and the ways in which our relationality and responsibility could be embedded in places. I've thought a lot about um, 
disability and the church when it comes simply to architecture. Uh, and I remember um, a friend of mine um, who's done a lot in this area, Bill Gaventa says, architecture is evangelism. If you, the way your buildings are structured communicates who is welcome. And he's not only talking about ramps, he's also talking about, um, you know, who is being held up as a model of the person right. who is meant to be here. And I think this can extend into some of those racial categories as well. If you've only got pictures of white men on the wall uh, as the exemplars of who has come before, well, who do we think is uh, welcomed and honored here? If you've only got, you know, um, people up front who look a certain way or dress a certain way or behave a certain way, then again, what are we communicating about right. who is right not just who is welcome here, but also who belongs here, who is valued here. And then I think similarly about, um, we were walking, actually I was with my family, um, walking through New Haven a couple of uh, weeks ago, and we were walking through a neighborhood that had been uh, populated during the great migration from the South, so predominantly by African-Americans. And one of the things my um, youngest daughter noticed when we walked from that neighborhood back towards the Yale campus, she said, mm -hmm. mom, it's so much cooler now. And what she essentially noticed was the presence of larger shade trees. Mm -hmm. And so again, mm -hmm. this built environment was communicating mm -hmm. a different sense of welcome once you got to one part of the city uh, from then another. And mm -hmm. I think all of those things do speak at, to your point as far as where we live very much informs who we are, even Absolutely. if we try to deny that. No, that's exactly right. We we live we live with a legacy of violent geographies, Amy. Mm. And, um, that violence, that violence is as real as somebody taking a brick or a stick or a gun and coming after you by the shape of the neighborhoods, by the way um, bus lines function, as you said, by where trees are, where there are parks, where there are libraries, swimming pools. Yeah. Um, yeah. All of these things are, and here we have to remember, th these, these things don't happen by kind of natural um, rock formations or something. These things are intentional. And so we have to understand, and that's an intentionality that, that reaches through the decades, through the centuries. So a city or a community or a neighborhood is shaped inside the logic of a few people. Mm -hmm. And that logic will run forward for decades, for centuries. And so while you might have wonderful, well-meaning people who live in these communities, if, if they have not done two crucial things, understood the history of how this, this community has come to be shaped this way, yeah, and yeah. number two, thought about the new intentionality necessary and how we build anything, then they're, they're sitting at the heart of the problem and they are part of the problem. Their, their um, ignorance and inactivity continues the, that legacy of violent geographies. So that's why it's so important to understand um, not only where we live, but the shape of that living, the shape of that neighborhood and how it has come to be. And, and to pay attention now to the way things are being built. But right now we're in the midst of a global struggle over real estate. We're in the midst of a global struggle, global struggle over gentrification. Mm. And we're in the midst of what will become in the next couple of years, a new pandemic in homelessness. Mm. 
there are there are there's homelessness occurring all over this planet because people are um buying up taking over um land at a monstrous rate and along with that a lot of churches right now churches are churches um in this on this planet own more property than almost into any entity and we are in the midst of a massive transfer of church property into private hands as churches are closing selling their property uh and trying to trying to um survive and so we we have to pay attention to this. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, and I'm curious, so one of the things that you write about, this is in After Whiteness, is um, whiteness does not refer to people of European descent, but to a way of being in the world. And I think we've already been talking a little bit about that way of being in the world, but I would love to just hone in there for a minute on this this idea of whiteness as a way of being, like what is whiteness when you are writing about it or talking about it and how has it, um, yeah, how does whiteness show up in spaces even that aren't considered to be white? Uh, right. And how has it right. formed and shaped the culture that we're talking about? Right. This is one of the most challenging things for some people to, to think about because mm -hmm. people they've never ever had to think about whiteness as a thing. <laughs> yeah. um, and and the reason the reason so many people have never had to think about it is because it is inside a long history of formation so that people begin to see it as natural and um the only way people can start to see it as something that's not natural is to be in conversation with people who had to struggle at the other end of it that is People have had to struggle with non-white existence, mm -hmm. and so for so many people, whether they, whether they be uh, black or Latinx or Asian or however they have been designated in in, in non-white categories, everybody has had to do this important work. Amy, they've had to make a distinction between the image, the racial image that they are, have been given, that's filled with stereotype and derogatory elements and who they actually are. Hmm. And the challenge is, is that there are, there are little slivers, little pieces, little aspects of their cultural realities or their languages that have been embedded inside those derogatory images. And so they've had to do the really painful work of pulling, pulling those things out of that derogatory image so that who they actually are can be seen over against that derogatory image. And so in that, in, in many cases say, okay, well, yeah, call me, call me black. But what I mean by black is not all this mess that you have in here. I'm gonna pull out these little pieces. Okay, call me Asian, whatever you think that is. But but I'm gonna pull out out of the out of all that derogatory stereotypical mess, these little pieces and elements that um, are part of who I am, but I'm not that. So, so many peoples have had to do that work all their lives, right? Mm -hmm. But whiteness was presented as something positive, as an, an, an image. Think of it as a, an image that's positive, always positive, always beautiful, always right, always mm -hmm. in the imperial position of knowing. And so people who have wanted from the very beginning to see themselves that way 
what comes with that is that you know think of think of two hands that's not if people can see what i'm doing right. think of two hands <laughs> put together. and so people have said well there there's really no reason given its positivity there's no reason for me to ever imagine myself as different from that until someone says it's not all positive <laughs> it's there's problematic aspects to it and so we'll, to, but if if someone has so identified with the image yeah so identified with the the vision then for someone to come along and say no that's really not who you should be mm-hmm. that's incredibly painful right because this has been really comfortable. So why would I want to create a, create, create a distance? So that's part of the reason why it's been so difficult for people to even to think about the matter of whiteness. But now to come to the, what you asked me a moment ago, what is whiteness? Whiteness is a way of being in the world and a way of seeing the world at the same time. Whiteness is a way to organize the world, a way to envision the world, a way to to make sense of the world. And whiteness is having the power to order one's world by that effort. And whiteness takes as its kind of cardinal, its crucial, its foundational aspirations, possession, control, and mastery. Possession, control, and mastery of my world to make sense of my world, to organize my world, to run my world. And so whiteness is an aspiration of really of control, of, of, um, of providence, of being able to live one's life in the way God, imag- God has imagined you should live your life and do it from a position of utter control. And by and and by that, I don't mean that you control everything that happens in your life, but that you're always able to make sense of it, and in many ways, bend reality to make sense. And so, this has been the aspiration for so many people coming to the Western world, and the Western world is formed in this aspiration. And so, whiteness is a fundamental problem because whiteness. Um, is built inside of these aspirations for, in in a sense, for imperial dominance that never imagines itself as being dominant. Well, and for me, you know, as a white person, the way that I think I've been invited into seeing the problems of whiteness has actually been through uh, the lens of disability because I have a daughter with Down Mm -hmm. syndrome. And that is where... For when Penny was first born, and some listeners have heard me say this before, but I really saw I saw these barriers to access for her in the the world that the social mm-hmm. world that I lived in, and I thought my job was to knock down those barriers so she could come in and be like me. And over time, I began right. to recognize that wait a second, there are some problems with what it means to be like me, and they come up with what mm-hmm. you were just saying. This. Um, sense of individualism, of control, of productivity, Mm -hmm. achievement. Um, And I saw all of those as kind of unquestioned goods. And I began to recognize that actually 
her way of being in the world, which involves vulnerability and dependence and mutuality. Um, it's a way of love instead of control. It's a way of, yeah, dependence rather than individualism. And, and it can be mutual dependence. It doesn't need to be, um, you know, simply going in the direction of her having needs, but that sense of, oh, wait, what if I too recognize myself as a needy, vulnerable human who has gifts to offer and who needs to be Mm -hmm. in and among others in order for my full humanity to be expressed? What if I really don't understand everything and I never can? What if love is actually a laying down of my life rather than a, um, ordering it and controlling it in such a way that I'm the master of it. So all of those things have come to me, or at least begun to come to me by way of disability and helped me start to understand, I think, this concept of whiteness as, yes, of course, this has a racial history to it, but it's not simply about Um, you know, skin color or ethnicity. There's a concept here that I've been playing into that is um, tied up in, you know, um, being an American, being white, educated, affluent, all of those things, having grown up in the institutional spaces I've been a part of. Um, And I'm wondering if you can speak to the idea that we that there are ways in which the Christian imagination has been shaped by forces that separate rather than build bridges among peoples. Like, and what, what would it mean from a Christian perspective, what tools do we have for a work of reimagining of, of reshaping beginning to build? That's a great question. We, um, the, the, the legacy we're inside of uh, is a legacy of a particular kind of formation of a human. And I talk about this in my book, After Whiteness. Um, it, it, all, all Western education has been shaped to move us toward one image of what maturity looks like, Amy. And you know, you, you mentioning your, your child is really important in this regard because um, it, it highlights what you said, highlights the problem of that image. And that image that's at the heart of our education, that image that's at the heart of what we understand formation to be, is the image of a white, self-sufficient man who ha- who shows those three virtues I mentioned earlier, what I call dismal virtues, possession, control, and mastery. And so all of education, all of formation m- is aiming to move us toward that reality, because that that person imagined is one who is able to exhibit independence and is the one who is able to build a world, sustain a world, maintain a world, and in, and in fact, build a world better. So um, whether we're talking about men or women or, uh, or, um, or those who um, are non-binary, we're still talking about a reality that can capture everyone. Mm-hmm. That is, what we're aiming people toward is this self-sufficient, autonomous, independent person able to not only control and possess, but master their world. Now, the difficulty, of course, is that for Christians, that image has been embedded deeply inside of what we understand salvation to be about. We are being saved. We are being cultivated into that image. And so the resources we have 
um, our inside of our faith is to challenge that sick vision of maturity, that sick vision of what it means to be formed as a human being, what it means to be formed as a Christian. And what, what you said earlier is really the heart of it. For the Christian, it is not independence. It is not independence that is a mark of maturity. It's mutual dependence. Mm -hmm. It's not self-sufficiency that's a mark of Christian maturity. It's interconnectedness. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not autonomy. It's mutuality. It's life together. Uh, it's, it's not independence. It's entanglement. These are the realities that constitute Christian maturity for us. But now, what I've just said for so many people, they've never gotten a memo of any of that. <laughs> Their vision of what it means to, to grow and mature and become a Christian is that you become utterly independent. You can stand on your own two feet, as it's often said. And that, that image by itself is so deeply problematic. I mean, when we, when we think about how we come to stand on our feet, we it starts by people holding our hands. Mm. It starts by, you know, two people at, at either end of a space and saying, walk, walk to mommy, walk to daddy. <laughs> it, it, it continues with those showing us where to walk and how to walk. And then as we get older, it, it becomes those helping us walk. And so it, it, our lives speak against that saying. But the reality for us is that the, the tools within the Christian life that would help us do this have been in many ways subverted and turned into tools that help to underwrite this sick vision of formation. Yeah, I um, re remember when Penny was first born, my husband and I would often think about what she would be like in heaven. I mean, that was kind of our vision at the time of what, you know, what, what happened, what would happen after she died? Would she still have Down syndrome? And what actually helped us to reimagine her and our ourselves was recognizing, well, wait a second. If I'm saying that she might not have Down syndrome in heaven, what am I saying about myself? Like I'm mm -hmm. essentially envisioning myself in a perfected form like Superman, where I have no needs for other people and I can do everything for myself. And it was like, that's like the antithesis of a Christian vision of humanity, because the whole point is even from the very beginning, like we were made for each other to exist in loving relationships with God and with one another, a mutual dependence and care. And so if anything, I will look more like my daughter when I'm in heaven, rather than the other way around. Um, mm -hmm. And so there has been a, a real reshaping of my imagination, which I don't know what, you know, what that's all going to look like. It's just helped me to really understand, I think, what you're talking about as far as um, not envisioning a maturity that looks like me becoming more and more strong and capable and productive, but a maturity that actually involves me becoming more and more aware of my need for other people and for God's love to sustain me in um, all that I'm doing and for my interconnectedness. And well, I, is, yeah, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I, I think at the end of the day for all of us who are Christian, the challenge is to 
um, trust again the the beauty of life together. Mm. There's so many people who are who don't trust it, and we know why. I mean, if you've been raised in a really uh, painful and harmful community or family or environment, you know, all the stuff we're talking about now is you know, like, I don't know about any of that. You know, you're suspicious of of the the together. Mm. Or, or or if you're someone who's you know you know you are LGBTQ and you have you know you've been you've been treated so poorly in community, you distrust this kind of talk. So we we understand that the the challenge is to envision a new kind of life together. Mm-hmm. Kind of life together would mean that we not only accept each other but we live for and with each other. And in that regard, the goal of the goal of mature life, the goal of full life is never a goal of isolation. And uh, it never is a de- definition of freedom that's freedom from, it's always freedom with. And that's the challenge for so many people to, to imagine freedom as a freedom with. Now, of course, we have to press this more, Amy, because the, the reality is, is that um, in this country, there are a lot of people who have community, but it's community that's deeply homogeneous. And what I mean by that, it's community of color, kin, and kind, as we used to say in the South. Mm-hmm. It's communities that remain predominantly white, remain predominantly whatever ethnic group you want to name, and that the, the reality of life together continues to be short-circuited for the Christian, because we continue to fight against the multitude that God is trying to bring about. And so I think it's important for us to recognize that while we do want to underscore the together, the together has to be, uh, if we're following where the Spirit of God is leading, the together has to be in the multitude. And it has to shake and break open the ways we understand our safety, comfort, and normalcy inside homogeneous homogeneous realities. Which is so challenging in light Mm -hmm. of, again, just institutional history, the place which we've just been talking about, the way our um, neighborhoods and towns and, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. you know, churches Mm -hmm. have been Mm -hmm. formed and shaped. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the, I I think this will help us maybe get there. You're the subtitle for After Whiteness is an Education in Belonging. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And in that book, you write The Cultivation of Belonging should be the goal mm-hmm. of all education. Uh, right. And so I'd love to hear you speak a little bit about what you see, like what does belonging mean? And how do we how do we know if belonging is what's happening? How could education be shaped um, in order to create a sense and a spaces of belonging? Yeah. Uh, because I think that might speak to the multitudes actually coming together rather right. than being isolated. Well, let's think about this first for the Christian, then we can, then we can open it out to other peoples. But for the Christian, the the image I want us to to hold on to is Jesus and the crowd. Jesus and that crowd. Jesus draws a crowd. And anyway, we have to remember is that the crowd are people who um, come from all walks of life who would normally not want to be together. Many enemies in that crowd. Many people that if you turned your back, they there would be a knife being being thrown across the room at somebody else, and 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 fists would be be thrown. These are not friends who are gathering to hear Jesus. These are people from every walk of life, many of whom are are unhappy that they are 
shoulder to shoulder with these other folks. But this is the crowd Jesus draws. And what's so important about that is that the crowd is not Christian, but it is the basis upon which a Christian could form. Hmm. The crowd is not um, in agreement, but is the basis upon which life together could form. And it is a group of people who... um, are only there because they want something from Jesus. But Jesus, in turn, wants them to want each other. And so part of the deal with him is that if you want from me, then you must take what I want for you. Mm. It is that it is that reality of this uneasy mixture, this uneasy gathering that becomes the basis upon which to think life together, to think life together as church. Now, why this is so important is because this is exactly the work that the Spirit of God is calling us to do, to open ourselves to those we would prefer not to be with. Mm-hmm. And that becomes the basis, that becomes the basis of creating a new reality of belonging, a reality of belonging that is not tied to one single story, but the weaving of many people's story, that's tied to one single way of life, but the weaving together of many ways of life to create something new. It's a reality of belonging that that should be at the heart, be at the heart of the Christian life. But to, but to move beyond the reality of the Christian life and to think about education more broadly and to think about formation more broadly, as I do in After Whiteness, um, you know, what, I, what I'm suggesting is that what we want is to move away from that image I talked about earlier, that has been the heart of uh, Western education for all peoples, no matter what your race, religion, or background, or gender, you know, the, that, that reality of what we're forming you toward. And to ask this question, what would happen if we in, took away that image of the white self-sufficient man and inserted a different reality? And that is not the image of another person, but the image of this gathering, Jesus in the crowd. And to put it this way, that what we want for people is no matter what you do in your life, what kind of vocation you have, no matter what it is, that what is what defines your work is that, that you are able to gather people together. People who would never really want to be together, but because of the way you do your work, the way you live your life, you draw together people across boundary and border and hostility and history. They come, they come together and they become friends through what you do. Now that that's the reality of belonging that we want, not only for those of us who are Christian, but for those of us who um, live in societies racked with the kinds of divisions that we're racked with right now. Well, and as we kind of come to the close of this conversation, I'm curious whether you have seen that happen um, and, and, or 
if there are ways you can imagine that happening in terms of schools or churches that I'm thinking particularly of institutions that have been historically shaped by what we're talking about when we talk about whiteness and what steps those types of institutions can take towards becoming spaces of belonging or even creating spaces of belonging within what, you know, what might take many more years um, to, to actually become full spaces that way. Like, have you seen that happen or can you imagine that yeah. happening? And, and if so, how? I have seen it, but it's always episodic. It's always, you know, this pocket of people here, this relationship there, this group here uh, for a time they, they reach. And there are some, there are some abiding characteristics that run from group to group, person, uh, people to people, episode to episode. It's people who decide they want each other, Amy. Mm. It's people who decide Mm. that, um, they want to be together. Um, they 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 don't. They may not agree on everything. They um they they you know make mistakes. They say things to each other that they have to apologize for. They um they misstep. But at the heart of it, what you see are people who have committed their lives to each other. They want to be together, and so they do extraordinary things. Because they have made this commitment. And so what's necessary for institutions and for churches? You know, I, I always say there are like three things. The first is that they, they have to learn the history we're talking about now. And many of them don't. They, they have to learn the history of the way in which races come about. Mm-hmm. The, the, and they, they have to also learn the history of how their, their racial isolation and segregation continues to function how it's come about and how and the ways it continues to function. The second thing is that they have to make a commitment to understanding their own formation, how they've come to be who they are, and what aspirations yet drive them forward. That, that's, a, you know, as you were saying earlier, when you talked about, you know, what you imagine for your daughter in heaven and, and th- that kind of deep thinking about who I am and who we are. Each person has to has to do that work. And then the third thing there has to be, as I always say as a theologian, there has to be a, a, a basic decision to stop resisting the spirit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been at this a long time and, and here's what I know. I'm, I've, I've been doing this a very long time. And um, wherever I go to talk to people, I always say to them, there are there are people that the Spirit of God is trying to get you to connect to, to, to move your life toward, that you are resisting. Mm. And mm. what you have to do is stop resisting. And Amy, I have never had someone say to me, I don't know what you're talking about. Every time I've said that, people almost immediately, have, it comes into their mind those group of people that they have been avoiding, that they know they have been avoiding, <laughs> and um, they know somewhere in their spirit, somewhere in their heart, that the Spirit of God is tapping them and saying, "You, I want you to connect to them. Mm-hmm. And so um, the, the, here's the thing, I, you know, I, you mentioned the commentary on the book of Acts. One of the amazing things about that, that book in Scripture is that when the Spirit comes, one of the fundamental 
signs of the Spirit, is that the Spirit is pressing people to do what they don't want to do. (laughs) And what's at the heart of doing what they don't want to do is very often connecting with people they would prefer not to connect with. But that's the Spirit saying, no, go, go, go. And so um, my my plea, to, especially to those who are Christian, is that stop resisting the Spirit because the, the Spirit of God is present trying to build community. And the, we, we have become experts at thwarting the will of God by resisting the Spirit. Mm. So my hope is that we would, we would yield. And for a Christian, um, that should be, that should be second nature. Mm. Well, I think that's a perfect way to end this, just with that exhortation to not resist the spirit of God. And also I think, and I think you're uh, going back to your initial comment about beauty mm-hmm. as a motivating force for your work and the uh, work that you've done really points to that, that on the one hand, it's scary to mm-hmm. make those overtures to trust and to let go of control and to relearn and get to a place of honesty about the past and humility about the present and all of those things can be really scary and risky. And yet the, um, for lack of a better word, the payoff of the beauty and richness and um, possibility that exists in mm-hmm. these unexpected places of community and belonging mm-hmm. and re-understanding ourselves as humans are mm-hmm. and being more connected to the love of God as a result of it. Um, mm-hmm. It's really worth it. I mean, it's a very exciting, generative set of possibilities, even though it also um, risks a lot of um, what we've known. We put a lot of that on the line in terms of making those moves and um, and yeah, heading in that direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for your time. And I will make sure in, you know, various places to uh, point people towards, especially, um, I guess we've really talked about after whiteness the most in this conversation, but also your commentary on acts um, and the Christian imagination is also such an important book in terms of understanding all of these things. So thank you for your work and thank you for your time today. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. My, my pleasure, Amy. Great to, great to talk with you. Good to meet you as well. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, as always, for listening to this episode of Love is Stronger Than Fear. Check the show notes for links to books and passages and articles we mentioned. And I'll say it again. If you've listened this far, maybe you're willing to take another two minutes and give this podcast a rating, a review, share it with other people who might benefit from these conversations about hope and healing in a fractured world. I will always say thank you to Jake Hansen for editing the podcast and to Amber Beery for supporting this show in every way, which is to say the show notes and all of the media that goes around um, getting it out into the world and telling people about it. So thank you, Jake. Thank you, Amber. And thank you for being here and listening. As you go into your day today, I hope and pray you will carry with you the peace that comes from believing that love is stronger than fear.